Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Today, continuing our series in chapter 3, picking up in verse 11. Uh, Just a heads up that we will be breaking our series next week to consider uh, particularly the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 2 next week, if you want to be reading that in preparation. But today, Numbers chapter 3 beginning in verse 11, you'll notice in your bulletin that our reading today goes to the end of chapter 4. Today is the first time that I am not going to be reading the entire passage, and that means that today's sermon comes with a homework assignment. Uh, I'm going to read to the end of chapter 3. I'm going to encourage you sometime at home later today during your Sabbath uh, observance that you read chapter 4 for yourself. What you will find there when you read it Uh, is a passage similar to uh, chapter 3, but different in important ways. In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, we will find find two censuses of the Levites. The first one, uh, numbering everyone from a month old and upward. The second one, numbering only those who are fit for the work of the tabernacle. Uh, And so there is a different focus, and we'll we'll look at uh, particularly the focus in chapter 3 today. Uh, But as you go through chapter 4, you will find... Uh, the Levites broken down by their family clans, and, uh, and you will find uh, the work that they are called to do. And particularly note, when you go through that chapter, the importance of the holiness of the Lord and the warning of God not to take those things lightly. But today, Numbers chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 11 to the end of the chapter in 51. Before we read this word together, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, this is your word, and we, your people, gather around it by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would lead us as we read, that you would make us attentive, uh, that the names and uh, the assignments that we hear uh, in this passage would not be so many dead instructions, uh, but you, O Lord, would help us to see and know that your word is living and active. That your word is like a hammer that shatters the rock of our hearts. We pray that you would do that in numbers today. We pray that you would use your word and send it out. May it not return to you void, O Lord. We have this promise from you, and so we have great confidence uh, that you will lead us today as we read. Would you do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 3, beginning to read in verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi by fathers' houses and by clans. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. These are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans, Libni 
and Shimei, and the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, and the sons of Merari by their clans, Mahli and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites by their fathers' houses. To Gershon belonged the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shimeites. These were the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing, according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, was 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west, with Eliasaph, the son of Lyel, as chief of the father's house of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar, and its cords. All the service connected with these. To Kohath belonged the clan of the Amramites, and the clan of the Israelites, and the clan of the Hebronites, and the clan of the Uzielites. These are the clans of the Kohathites. According to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, there were 8,600, keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle, with Elizaphan, the son of Uziel, as chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. And their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priest minister, and the screen, all the service connected with these. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites, and to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. To Merari belonged the clan of the Mahlites and the clan of the Mushites. These are the clans of Merari. Their listing, according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, was 6,200. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. They were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle, and the appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories, all the service connected with these. Also, the pillars around the court, with their bases and pegs and cords. Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. All those listed among the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron listed, at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward were 22,000. And the Lord said to Moses, List all the firstborn males of the people of Israel, from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of names, from a month old and upward, as listed, were 22,273. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 
the shekel of 20 geras, and give the money to Aaron and his, and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. As far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There in, in 1 Corinthians, at the close of chapter 6, Paul summarizes the entire logic of Christian living. One statement, three ideas, and it all begins with God's ownership. You are not your own, he says. Why is it that believers do what they do? Or at least, why are they supposed to do what they're supposed to do? Why do they live as they live? Why are they meant to be so different from the world around them? The answer is because Christian life doesn't belong to you. Your faith, your hope, your control over your body, the places that you go, the things that you engage in, your desires and your dreams, your plans and your thoughts, none of it is yours if you're a Christian. It all belongs to the Lord. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. This is the fundamental truth that our hearts have been pushing against ever since sin first entered the universe. You know, I I hope you know, that Genesis is not a myth. The first rebellion against the Lord was the desire to have what he said we ought not to have. To control and to consume what he said we ought not to control and to consume. It was the impulse to claim for ourselves that which did not belong to us, and ever since, every manifestation of sin has had its roots buried in the soil of supposed self-ownership. You see it everywhere. Everywhere from the toddler who rages against his bedtime to the teenager who conveniently forgets their curfew. The soil of self-ownership. You see it in the push nowadays to establish what are being called uh, supervised injection sites in our cities. Places where drug addicts can go and they can continue to kill themselves slowly uh, under a watchful eye with clean needles. You also see it in the the outright acceptance of physician-assisted suicide. Places that the terminally ill can go and kill themselves quickly under a close watch with clean needles. The working premise behind all of it is the same. The premise is, life belongs to us. It's ours to do what we want with, it is ours to live, and it's even ours to decide when we call it quits. But the Christian is the person who ought to know better, at least in principle. Even if we struggle nearly as much, uh, exactly as much, 
is everybody else around us to put that principle into place. The Christian is the person who begins with the recognition of God's ownership. That's what Numbers is all about today, God's ownership. And today, as we look at chapters 3 and 4, we're going to have just two main points. First, looking at God's claim on his people. Second, acknowledging God's calling for his people. God's claim and God's calling. You notice that God's ownership opens our passage. Notice how wonderfully possessive the Lord is in verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, he says. Some of you know how it works because uh, you live with roommates or you have lived with roommates. You know how it works. You go out to get Mexican, and your double chimichangas are too much for you. And so you come home with your little doggy bag, and before you put it in the refrigerator, you write your name on it so that nobody decides to get grabby with your personal property. Well, here in Numbers 3, we have the Lord who writes mine, who writes his name on the tribe of the Levites. He claims them, for himself. He is the God who says they belong to me. I pay special attention to the way that the Lord says that the Levites are to be numbered in chapter 3. This isn't the first census that we've seen. Back in chapter 1, all the men of Israel, all the other tribes were counted, but they were counted from the age of 20 and upward. It's because that census was a warfare census. And what you needed was to be strong enough to wield a sword if you were going to the front lines. So there was a purpose to that census. And in chapter 4, there will be a purpose to that one as well. It was a census according to the tasks that the Levites would have in the tabernacle of the Lord. And it included things like carrying heavy stuff, but it also included things like the need for spiritual maturity. So chapter 4 will hit that sweet spot. My brothers, around the age of 40, midlife, that's the prime according to Numbers chapter 4. God says number everyone from 30 to 50. Physically strong, spiritually mature, right where we want them. Here in chapter 3, God says you're going to number all of them. You're going to begin with every male from a month old and upward. Everyone was included. Whether he was old enough to carry or whether he was young enough to be carried. It shows us that the Lord is not claiming only the service that his people can give him. He's not interested only in what they can do for his namesake. He's interested in them. He's claiming them as his possession. And for you children in the congregation, there's also a message for you too. The message is that we find in Numbers 3, the message is that you don't have to be big to be special to the Lord. Jesus welcomed the little children into his household. God the Father counted the babies among the Levites. You don't have to wait until you're older to be a Christian. You don't have to wait until you know more, until you can do more. You don't have to wait until you can pray better. You can believe in Jesus and you can belong to him right now, right where you are. That's the message. Of course, there's a sense in which all people everywhere belong to the Lord. 
He is, after all, the only God there is, the only God in heaven and earth. Everyone is under his sovereign control. And so, in a sense, everyone already belongs to him. And it's true that in a special way, all the nation of Israel belongs to him by a special relationship that he established through the covenant. And so when the Lord brought them out of Egypt and brought them to Sinai, what he told them was that he had taken them to himself. That he was going to take them as a treasured possession. They were all his according to covenant. And so the Lord here in chapter 3, he's not denying that all people are his by right. He's not denying that all of Israel is his by promise, but he is saying that all of Levi is his by consecration, by being set apart for a special task, for a special calling. They're they're his because he's sanctifying them. That's the language we use in the New Testament. He's making them more and more holy. He's dedicating them to his own use, and he says they shall be his. It's God's ownership. And and the Lord expresses this ownership in Numbers 3 in terms of a double claim. He has a double claim on his people. The people are his both because of who God is, and they are his because of what God does. Who he is and, and what he does. If you want something that sounds a bit more theological, they are his because of lordship, and they are his because of redemption. But it amounts to the same thing. God's people belong to him because of who he is and what he does. The first idea shows up in verse 13. And it's not so much an afterthought as it is an exclamation point. The Lord says, On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. You know, this is a pretty dramatic claim that God is making in these verses. All the firstborn, he says. They're all mine. They all belong to me. I am the Lord. I can claim them if I want. And I want to. And I'm taking them. It's a dramatic claim because in the ancient world, especially, the firstborn sons were the hope of the future. They were the ones that inherited much more than their siblings. They were the primary inheritors of land and of status. They represented all the strength of their fathers, all the hope of their mothers. Even in Matthew Henry's day, he says that the firstborn of a family are generally the favorites. No offense to you younger children. And with this language that all the firstborn belong to him, the Lord is claiming for himself everything that is dear to all the families in Israel. Because the Lord has spoken, their boys do not have the right to pursue their own quiet little secular life. They must be given to God. Do you remember uh, in 1 Samuel when Hannah takes uh, young Samuel and presents him to the Lord as long as he is alive? He is given to the Lord, she says. That's the idea. They belong to him. They should stay with him. They should serve him. They don't get to go about the rest of the the ways that people live in the world. And every family must give up someone. This is a dramatic claim. It's true that the Lord says he's willing to accept a substitute in their place. He's going to take the Levites, he says, instead of all the firstborn. But even then, it's a tall order. I mean, why should the people have to do things This way. Who could demand such incredible things? And the answer is that the Lord can demand those things. Yahweh is able 
to make that claim. The great I am. The self-existent one who is overall the maker of all things, the sustainer of all things. He can make such a dramatic claim. And so you notice that that exclamation point is repeated later. Verse 41, the Lord says, You shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord. He says it again, verse 45, Take the Levites. He says, take the cattle of the Levites. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. It's the end of the argument as far as God is concerned. He is the Lord, and there can be no question when he declares his will. If the Lord claims a people, they are his, period. That is why Paul, in the New Testament, applies the same punctuation to the debate over sovereignty and election and what we're supposed to think about God's choice. He says this, Romans chapter 9, why are you, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter right over the clay to make them all however he chooses, he concludes. He's the Lord. He can do as he likes. He can claim what he wants. So before anybody in Israel gets too excited about their individual rights, before they start talking about the need for a self-governed society, before they begin to lament their future hopes of a life in accounting, rather than carrying around the furniture that belongs to God, the Lord shuts down the opposition. His people belong to him. They are at his disposal and simply because of who he is. They are his because of his lordship. There's a note of grace here, though. They're also his because of redemption. Because of what he has done for them. The Lord is able to claim his people because he's God, but he also claims his people because he has purchased them. Verse 13, again, spells it out for us. He says, all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own. All the firstborn in Israel, both of man and beast, they shall be mine. I am the Lord. The Lord is reminding Israel that a price has been paid. A substitute has delivered them from destruction. The ordeal is recounted in in Exodus chapter 12, if you want another homework assignment, on the night before they came out of Egypt, Yahweh commanded each family to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, a year old, and to prepare it for their own families. He commanded them, as you remember, to take some of the blood of that animal and to paint it on the doorposts and on the main beam of the house. And then he said that that blood on the door would be a sign for the people and a sign for the Lord that there was a substitute in their place. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, he says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There was a substitute. Life for life. And blood for blood, there was a substitute, a price that was paid to release them from slavery. And so you notice uh, that this entire census in chapter 3 is structured around the need that the Israelites had to, to buy back, in a sense, their firstborn sons from the Lord because he's the one who owns them. Verses 44 to 51, we read of the redemption of the firstborn. In fact, that was the point of counting the Levites in the first place, because they were part of this redemption price. The Lord says several important places he's willing to accept them instead of the firstborn of Israel. The Levites are God's 
redemption price, but then there are these 273. What do we do about them? Those that are over and above, those uh, represented by the Levites. And so the Lord calls for this five shekel fee. In verse 49, the ESV calls this five shekel fee a redemption price. You might have a different translation in front of you, and it might call it ransom money. That's actually a pretty good handling. It sounds distasteful to our ears. We think of kidnapping when we hear of ransom, but that's the idea. That's the language. The same word in different contexts would speak of a slave price. The price that you would pay to free a slave from one household to come and serve in a different household. And the Lord is reminding his people by this language. He's teaching them that he has purchased Israel from Egypt through the mercy of the substitute. He took Israel, who he calls his firstborn son, and speaking to Pharaoh, he took Israel out of their slavery while another one died in their place. And now, because of of that substitute, they owe their very lives to him. They owe their physical salvation. They owe their relationship with the Lord. They owe their spiritual future. They owe their identity as a nation to the God who sent a substitute. And that was why the Lord ordained this redemption money. Not just here in numbers, but in order to be a perpetual reminder for all the people through all their generations, this is why they had to pay this five shekel fee. The ransom price was a remembrance. It was a memento. The Lord was not getting rich on this, you understand? God was not so hard up for cash, that he he had to have every family pay their own way and contribute and and crowdfund what he was doing with Israel. God doesn't work like that. He gave them this this ritual, this fee, this, this money that they had to pay. He gave them this burden as a remembrance of what he had done for them so that they would never forget that the Lord had bought them to himself. Exodus 13, the Lord commanded this remembrance of the Passover year after year. It's the same chapter where he gives them this monetary burden of ransom for every family throughout their generations. And he even commanded parents to raise their children with this this notion of redemption baked into their rituals and, and worked into their budgets every year. He predicted the kinds of conversations that they would have when they obeyed the Lord in this way. Exodus 13, verse 14. The Lord said, When in time to come, your son asks you, What does this mean? That is the redemption price. What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the male animals that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And then the Lord adds, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. A mark on your hands, a frontlet between your eyes. In other words, it's supposed to be a reminder. It is a memorial of God's strength in his salvation. And in a way, that's the role that the Levites serve. That's what they're doing here. They served instead, says God. They serve in the place of another one. They were substitutes reminding Israel of a greater and a prior substitute. 
They stood outside the tabernacle uh, in place of all the firstborn, and they pointed beyond themselves to the redemption of the Lord. They were living reminders of the claim that God has upon his people. I hope by now it doesn't take too much effort to see how all of this applies to the church. The New Testament, of course, directly picks up the language of the Exodus and the Passover and uses it as the backdrop for the gospel, for our spiritual salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul reminds the church in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. The Levites pointed to a prior sacrifice, but that prior sacrifice pointed to a sacrifice to come, and Paul says it's Jesus. Jesus himself instituted his supper in the context of that ceremonial meal. Engaging in the Passover with his disciples, he told them, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Not blood painted on our houses, blood sprinkled on the altars of our hearts. Blood that is what what Titus chapter 3 calls the washing of regeneration and renewal through the Holy Spirit poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And it means that even in the days of the wilderness, the Lord is setting the stage for this greater redemption. Even in giving this redemption price, even in calling aside and numbering the Levites, even in pointing back to the exodus from Israel, he's beginning to get the people ready to see the one who was going to come. The great Passover lamb, he was preparing them to see that. And when Jesus came, he was the one who surrendered himself. You understand that? When Jesus came, he did not refuse the absolute claim that God put on his life. By his obedience to the Lord, he fulfilled every commandment of the law of God. By his sacrifice on Calvary, he paid every debt that his people could not. Christ became the ransom for God's children. Not as a token, not not as a reminder. He surrendered himself as the only true substitute for sinners. Life for life and blood for blood. Down to every last head and name, Christ gave himself as the true substitute to redeem all of God's elect, to buy them back and to make them God's treasured possession. And you know what that means, don't you? It means that if the Lord has made you part of his people, then he has a claim on your life. All people belong to him by rights. He's the only God who is, you know. There's no people, there's no person who is outside of his sovereign control. Your life is his by rights because of lordship, but your life is also his by redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Our Savior has become our substitute. And now the Lord calls you, dear Christian, to live your life as a reminder that you are not your own. That you have been bought with a price. That brings us finally to our second point. It's shorter though because it's it's really just application of the first point. 
God's calling on our lives grows out of our understanding of his claim. If he's the one who has called us to himself, then he's also the one who can direct what it is that we're supposed to do in the world. If the Lord has saved us by the blood of his son, he's not going to waste that sacrifice. He's going to give us a job to do. Some way to fulfill the service that he calls us into. The Lord has a calling for his people. Like his claim on us, God's calling is also double. God's calling for his people is a calling into holiness, and it's a calling into service. That call to holiness shows up all through this chapter. It shows up particularly in the language of consecration. On the day I struck down the firstborn, I consecrated for my own, the Lord says. I set them apart, and so the Lord says, my people must be different. They must be sanctified. And so Aaron entered into the high place, the holy of holies, once a year. And when he went in, he had on the forehead of his turban this gold bar emblazoned with the call for all God's people that said, Holy unto the Lord. He was there as a representative, you know. Representing before God what all God's people were supposed to be. They were supposed to be holy unto the Lord, consecrated to him. And outside the tabernacle, the Levites were there, and they became the living reminders of that call to holiness. So they were stationed around the tabernacle to separate it from the defilement of unauthorized Israelites. It was an aspect of maintaining holiness before the people. It was the first calling of all those who belonged to God. You know, the New Testament echoes the same idea. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It means a life of consecration. Quite frankly, it means a life of hard work. It means a life of struggle. It means a life of pursuit after the things of the Lord. It means putting to death the deeds of the body by the grace of the Holy Spirit. It means mortifying those things that are earthly in us. It means walking in holiness. It means saying no to the things that God has said no to, and yes to the things that God has said yes to, but note the order. First God's calling, then our holiness. First His redemption, then our obedience, not the other way around. Remember that our following in Jesus Christ's footsteps, remember that for the believer, holiness is not how we gain God's approval. It is rather one of the ways that we experience good gifts that the Father has for us. One example of that. How holiness is is a gift for us rather than a burden. The Lord calls his children to avoid the lusts of the flesh. To flee, he says, from sexual immorality. To get away from the filth that drowns us in every ad and every TikTok that comes before our eyes from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep every night. Everywhere around us. And the Lord says you ought to have nothing to do with those sorts of things. There ought not to be among God's people even a hint of immorality. But why does the Lord tell us to avoid those things? Is it just because he's he's prudish? 
Is it because he wants us to be backward in a culture that that thinks that those things are good? Is it just because he wants us to be repressed or miserable? Of course not. The Lord calls us away from immorality and into sexual holiness because he knows what's best for us. And aside from all the false promises of those lying images, the Lord also knows the way that sin becomes addiction. He knows the way that addiction becomes obsession. He knows the way that obsession devolves into a downward spiral of depression and disappointment and selfishness and despair. And if you think that's an exaggeration, you've never engaged with somebody who's caught in those things. I assure you, it is no exaggeration. And so the Lord tells us to flee from such things. Not because he doesn't want us to have any fun in the world. He calls us into holiness as a protection as a blessing. You know, he did the same with the Levites. So in chapter 4, verse 20, you'll find a warning to the sons of Kohath. They were the ones who handled the most holy things, the ark and the table and the the lampstand and the presence. And the Lord said, if you take God's holiness lightly for even a breath, if for even a moment you try to sneak a peek at the things that you should not be looking at, you will die the death of Nadab and Abihu. Why did the Lord give them that warning? Is it because he doesn't want them to see exciting things or to to have new experiences? No, it's because he cares about them. It's because he's putting his protection and his blessing around them. So he says, walk in my ways, sons. Follow me. Turn away from these things. The Lord called his people to be holy. He calls you to do the same, to be holy for your blessing. He also calls his people into service. All of chapter 4 bears this out. Even chapter 3, though, divides the tribes according to their specific tasks. You notice that the eldest is named first, even though uh, the Gershonites are on the south side of the tabernacle rather than the preeminent, uh, I'm sorry, they're on the west side rather than the preeminent south side. But the Gershonites were called to take care of the textiles, you know, the curtains and, and Uh, and the screens, and the cords, and the covers. The Kohathites kept the holy things, the ark, the table, all that sort of stuff. The Merarites, on the other hand, uh, they were the grunts. They had the bases. They had the pillars. They had the boards. They had the planks. They had the tent pegs. They had all of the hardware that goes into setting up a mobile sanctuary. And the Lord divided each of them because the Lord had a specific task for each of them to do, jobs that he chose, jobs that he assigned. It's a reminder that our Lord is able to demand our service in whatever way he sees fit. I think it's probably not hard to imagine that some of the Merarites might have been tempted to grumble about having to carry the tent pegs while their relatives got to carry the Ark of the Covenant. There were probably more than a few men who wished they were called to a more significant service than than, uh, what they were called to, something that seemed a bit more spectacular. I know that in my own heart, I would have been tempted to grumble, tempted to question where the Lord has placed me. We do it all the time. Why does does he get to pastor that big, busy church in that big, beautiful building? Why does she get to have those seemingly delightful in-laws? Why hasn't the Lord called me into marriage yet? Why hasn't the Lord given me more influence in my company. Why isn't he moving me up in the ranks? We can all fall into it. We judge our service by our circumstances. 
We judge our usefulness to the Lord by the outward station that he gives us to live in. Reality is, I don't know the callings, the specific callings that the Lord has for all of you, but I do know for pretty much a fact that we all struggle with wanting something other than the Lord has given us. Wishing we could serve him in some other way than the one that he has chosen. So maybe it's the child that you're called to keep witnessing to. Even though it feels like your words about the gospel are bouncing off of a brick wall. Maybe it's the past that you can't seem to get over or the people that you can't seem to forgive. Even though you know that the Lord has extended mercy to you and he calls you in grace to extend forgiveness even to those that have wronged you in terrible ways, but you can't seem to get over it, and that seems to be God's calling for your service to him. Maybe it's the hope in the Lord that you're called to hold on to, even though most days you suffer pain so bad that no one but you understands the spiritual toll it's beginning to take. Maybe that's where the Lord has placed you, and into those situations we're tempted to add our questions. Why couldn't I serve the Lord somewhere else? Anywhere else, really. I'd be happy to give any other offering, any other sacrifice of the Lord, but the one he seems to be putting in my way. And that's not how it works, is it? The Lord is the one who calls his people into service. He calls them because he's got a plan for their holiness, not, not a plan for their comfort. And that's why the Christian life is often viewed as a surrender, as an offering. So the New Testament tells us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, just like the Levites. Just like the Merarites on the north side of the tabernacle, packing up the tent pegs and the bases and the poles and the planks. A living sacrifice where the Lord has placed you and to the things God has called you to serve him faithfully as well as he enables you. A living sacrifice like the families redeeming their firstborn and whispering God's goodness into the ears of their children. Why does he order it that way? Well, because you're not your own. Quite frankly. Because your life doesn't belong to you. Because praise the Lord, you've been bought with a price. Praise the Lord, your Savior has become your substitute, and it means that God has a claim on you. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for uh, the Levites whom you called to yourself. We thank you for your word that you proclaim in our hearing. We pray that you would take your truth and sink it deep into our hearts, that you would give us your Holy Spirit who enables us to follow you. Lord, we do not become yours by following you, but we follow you because you've made us yours. Help us to know that and to believe you. And in your Holy Spirit, to walk in faithfulness with you. In holiness and in service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.